Um, well, okay. Um, in terms of how we uh, advertise this particular session, I know it doesn't um, need to um, strictly um, keep to the picture, but nonetheless, I'm going to begin with Ukraine. Um, it's uh, February, March, April, May, June, 28th of February, when the invasion began. Uh, I'm not going to um, go over uh, the last X months. Just to say, though, that um, in terms of um, initial expectations, um, I think there's been a general acceptance that um, everyone um, got it wrong. Um, what we've seen um, in the recent period um, has certainly been not a, a war of um, manoeuvre, which I think the first phase was an example of, which in my view at least uh, ended in a clear unmistakable failure um, on Russia's behalf for all sorts of reasons, Ukrainian resistance, uh, NATO training. Um, if uh, someone could, uh, that's it, thank you for demuting. Uh, all sorts of uh, reasons, um, you know, logistics. Either way, we're now definitely in the so-called second phase um, um, of the war. And I think the general consensus is that at the moment at least although it's slow and it's grinding um at the moment it's going in russia's uh, direction um that uh, okay this doesn't involve you know rapid advance it's slow it's a mile here and a mile there um nonetheless russia's making forward uh, progress in general and um, what we have in terms of um, the so-called West is uh, all sorts of different uh, commitments to back Ukraine. Some are backing Ukraine in the hope of a diplomatic uh, settlement. I think you'd have to include uh, France, Italy and Germany uh, in that category. On the other hand, there are those echoing uh, Zelensky uh, that talk about um, total retaking of Ukrainian territory, why, by which they mean not only the east of the country, but also, of course, Crimea, which instantly gets you into, you know, grand geopolitics with uh, Russia presumably losing its Black Sea uh, base. Uh, maybe the aim is, who knows, how realistic that is to see regime change in, in Moscow. And what I'm talking about there isn't so much the individual Putin, uh, but more, uh, more, something more fundamental uh, than that. Perhaps that's uh, the aim. Certainly if we look at the grand picture from the US point of view, here's a declining hegemonic power uh, that's determined not to go down um, at the moment, you know, Putin's delivered him, uh, delivered him, delivered it uh, an opportunity in Ukraine to fight with uh, Ukrainian soldiers instead of Americans uh, and NATO uh, forces. Um, but the aim clearly at the end of the day is China. And uh, China will be watching, of course, very closely uh, what's happening. 
um, from China's point of view, of course, the Hashbit at the justification uh, for um, Russia's war uh, is very different to its perspective. So China, um, you know, is being threatened on the basis of, you know, Uyghur Muslims, Tibet, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and is upholding the principle of, you know, one China, self-determination for China. Uh, meanwhile, what you've got is Russia. I'm not quite sure what its uh, war aims are. Um, you could describe it as, as, as being done, denazification, but I think that goes way beyond uh, the Azov battalion. I think that actually is the regime itself uh, uh, in Kiev. Either way, what we've had is the recognition of the um, rejoining of Russia and um, Crimea and the recognition of two people's republics in the east um, of uh, Ukraine. Um, okay, what I wanted just to touch upon is, I think, a growing expectation uh, that what we'll see is a very drawn out war. Um, you can't actually uh, be certain about that. But I think that if you take now, you know, Boris Johnson, um, he's talking about it won't be over for a year. Well, I think that's pretty safe to say. On the other hand, in Britain, Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, has talked about 10 years. Uh, maybe that means some sort of Korean uh, type uh, scenario where you have a ceasefire line, fighting stops, uh, but the war, whatever that means, given no one's actually declared war, uh, continues. Either way, what we're having is a constant upping um, of arms deliveries and I call it Western involvement. Uh, there is some involvement in terms of France, Italy, and uh, Germany at the moment, this has more taken a symbolic form of um, uh, the council, uh, the uh, commission, excuse me, the EU commission uh, putting forward Ukraine for candidate membership of the EU. That has to be confirmed whether that is confirmed uh, by the relevant countries. I'm at least um, skeptical uh, about. But the main, the main point would be that when uh, Boris Johnson popped up for his uh, photo op in Kiev, what he was promising was large scale training in NATO weaponry um, of um, um, Ukrainian uh, forces. Um, I think that that would happen in Britain. I could be wrong. It might be elsewhere in Europe. It could be in Ukraine. Uh, we know that there are British troops um, in Ukraine uh, not least SAS, Special Air um, Services, i.e. sort of undercover, shady, sabotage-type operations and all the rest of it. It's also just worth noting um, that, uh, according to Ukrainian sources, now whether this is a plea to get even more deliveries or to escalate the war further, uh, between 30 and 50% uh, of material that's being supplied to them from the West is actually destroyed uh, before it gets uh, to the front line, which is quite a high uh, percentage. Um, 
how much that's to do with uh, airstrikes um, and how much is to do with uh, missile strikes, uh, I don't know. All I would say, uh, though, is at the moment, uh, what we have is a war that's much closer uh, to World War I uh, than it is World War II. Uh, it's not that uh, you're talking about, you know, human waves and uh, tens of thousands of people dying in one attack. Nevertheless, what we're dealing with is artillery bombardment. Air superiority is uh, amazingly open to question. I think that's to do with uh, surface to air missiles, not least held by uh, infantry forces, i.e., you know, the, the, the one that I know of, at least, is the Stinger missile that was used way back in uh, Afghanistan by the Mujahideen. But also in terms of the warfare that we're talking about, although tanks are involved, uh, we're now dealing with uh, tanks as highly vulnerable, uh, you know, pieces of hardware um, on the battlefield because of these end laws. And um, what's the American one? Javelin. Uh, missiles and uh, uh, other such stuff. Okay, either way, um, what we have from Ukraine is the plea to the West uh, for parity. Uh, and what that's uh, um, meant to mean is not only more artillery pieces, you know, by many times over, uh, but also aircraft, um, more drones, more missiles. Um, what the result would be um, if that uh, is forthcoming, um, I'm in no uh, position uh, uh, to judge. All I would say is that anyone looking at this war wouldn't simply look uh, at what's going on, or at least what we think we know is what's going on on the ground. One would also look at the politics involved and how stable uh, the various governments um, uh, are. <laughs> So I don't think the Tories are just about to collapse. On the other hand, Boris Johnson, I'll come to him uh, in a minute. Uh, we've also got the midterm elections coming in America uh, with at least the prediction uh, that the Republicans will do well. And it, isn't it worthwhile noting in the context of a long war, the prediction of a uh, not just a year, but two, three, four, five, even a 10 year war uh, that the rebellion uh, against the 40 billion um, aid package. I don't know what percentage of that was military, but a good chunk of that was military that came from the United States. The rebellion against that actually came from the right, came from uh, the GOP, not from the um, uh, DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, backed um, um, members of Congress, disgracefully, uh, but the right, uh, who were actually advocating some sort of Trumpian isolationist uh, foreign policy. In other words, what the hell are we doing in another um, endless war? OK, it's not Americans that are dying, you know, by the hundreds a day. It's just Ukrainians. Nevertheless, uh, what you can say uh, is that Biden's position, if he loses big time, or if Democrats, I should say, lose big time in the midterms, um, who knows what will happen in 2024? Um, you know, maybe you'll get a rerun uh, of Trump on the basis that, uh, you know, tough guy like myself can talk to a tough like guy like Putin 
and we can get it all sorted. Uh, I, I don't know, but precisely you would take into account uh, such possibilities. And there's also, of course, uh, the possibility of some sort of regime change in Moscow. Um, I don't know anything about whether Putin is actually ill, how ill. On the other hand, um, shoving him into a sanatorium could be a good uh, move by the FSB in order to say that it was all uh, Putin's fault, that this was Putin's war and come to some deal. So there's always going to be politics uh, involved. It's not simply a matter of the battlefield, although the battlefield is clearly of vital uh, importance, because if, for example, uh, Russia not only succeeded in grinding grindingly um, advance um, uh, further and further in the Donbass, but actually, for example, managed to surround the Ukrainian uh, Eastern Army, uh, then what I've been talking about in terms of a war of uh, position uh, could suddenly bang, shift into stage three of the war, and you're back into a war uh, of maneuver, for example. So I'm not predicting that, I'm simply um, suggesting that at least as a possibility. Um, okay. Right. What I want to do is just quickly turn to British uh, domestic uh, politics, uh, because uh, in this uh, coming week, we've got the biggest rail strike in 30 years. There's been a ballot of rail workers. Tens of thousands of them have voted for strike action and to get strike action in Britain at the present time, it does involve trade unions jumping through an enormous number of hoops. So that has been done successfully and it's not just uh, the RMT, the Rail, Maritime and Transport uh, Union. Um, other unions on the rails uh, will be involved. So there's balloting of um, the train drivers union uh, and also TUSA, which is the um, ticket office uh, uh, type guys. I also read um, in terms of uh, what's to come because we're dealing in a situation of high inflation and um, lower wages, i.e. Um, real wages in Britain are going down. Uh, we're also dealing with uh, potential disputes in the autumn uh, with teachers uh, and potentially also with national health um, uh, workers. So again, that's a huge number uh, of, uh, of workers. So next week, basically, uh, Britain's um, rail network shuts down. So although they've only picked out, I think, three days uh, of strike, to all intents and purposes, it's a general shutdown because the trains are in the wrong position. Um, and so most, most uh, rail services uh, won't be functioning. And the Tory press and the Tories, of course, are kicking up a huge fuss uh, about this, about uh, the RMT and the rail workers attacking ordinary workers. School kids can't get to school to do their A-levels and, you know, the general suffering of the population because of uh, these unions. And meanwhile, we have uh, sort of splits and divisions within the Labour Party about those that come out with a statement or statements along the lines, yes, I understand the rail workers and I support their 
um, you know, use of industrial action, the government should go and get it sorted out, um, to people like Keir Starmer, who basically take a, um, I don't support the strike, but it's the government to sort it out uh, uh, type line. Uh, it should be pointed out uh, to those that don't know uh, British politics very well, uh, that the RMT, although it's the one of the, it's the inheritor union of um, the union that originally moved at the TUC, the Trade Union Congress, for the formation of the Labour Party, the RMT actually is not affiliated anymore. And that's, that's because it's to the left uh, and it's been a union that shifted in, you know, relatively recent times, I'd say the last 20 years, from being a general yeah, yeah, yeah union to a very, very sharply left uh, union. So the executive committee is dominated by various uh, individuals who are members of this, that or the other. Um, it is a very left wing uh, trade union. Um, and it's, uh, it was actually disaffiliated uh, from uh, the Labour Party because it backed candidates in Scotland uh, for the Scottish Socialist Party, which is now a shell of a nothing. Uh, either way, even under uh, Corbyn, um, people were voting not to re-affiliate. And although I disagree with that vote, these people were doing it for left-wing reasons, not right-wing reasons. So there, there is and has been a tradition in Britain of non-political uh, trade unions. Um, an example of that today, again, paradoxical given the leadership, is the National Education Union, which is the teachers union, the main teachers union, which although it's got loads of left wingers in the leadership, has historically been, you know, above politics, supposedly, um, um, and dominated by the right, although that's no longer true. Okay, so yesterday we had um, a large-ish, I don't know how many people uh, turned out um, on the demonstration in London. All I can tell you, and that's how I usually judge these, these things, is that being um, at the beginning of the demonstration with a, a load of other comrades on a stall, it took exactly one hour, 45 minutes for the front uh, to march past us uh, by the time the last uh, tail of it marched past us. Um, figures that I've heard aren't fantastic. So I've heard figures of 40,000, 50,000. This is from the Socialist Workers' Party quoting uh, people. I haven't heard what the police uh, estimate. Either way, that gives you a rough idea. Um, it wasn't of a high a political uh, nature. These were very much your workplace activists, but it was an impressive and uh, spirited uh, uh, turnout, uh, uh, I, ha I have to say. All I would add is that under conditions of where the entire working class is under attack, you know, to use an old fashioned phrase, in the pocket, um, the TUC. Uh, ought to be doing more in terms of coordinating strike uh, action and a drive towards unionization uh, of workers. What was particularly noticeable to me, I'm not preaching, I've got grey hair myself, I'm not quite a veteran of the movement, but nonetheless, 
But uh, if you look at the average profile of that demonstration uh, yesterday, it would have to say, you know, you'd have to say that as a throwaway figure, uh, it was 50 uh, and above. You know, it, it, it's evidence of the trade union movement not, uh, you know, um, going in uh, and winning over uh, young workers uh, uh, yet. That the, These workers tend to be in ununionized uh, areas and definitely something that something needs to be done about that because I would suspect somehow uh, that these people are suffering far more uh, in terms of uh, wage, real wage cuts uh, than other uh, sections of the working class. Okay, just wanted to add uh, um, a, a couple of events that are happening on Thursday. These are by-elections, they're interesting by-elections given the politics of Britain at the moment. We've just had Keir Starmer survive a confidence motion, survive by a clear margin. On the other hand, the number of uh, people calling uh, for no confidence in him, I have to say, I don't know what his expectation was, uh, but much more than my uh, expectation. Remember, in British politics, uh, a government has, roughly speaking, at least 100 people um, on the payroll in Parliament, you know, as either minister, junior ministers or uh, parliamentary private secretaries. And these people are meant to be, to use a phrase, in the bag when it comes to the vote. Apparently 16 of them uh, didn't vote as they should have done. And a hunt is on to find out who the hell they are. So Boris Johnson would have got a real shock, I would guess. Uh, not that it was, uh, you know, uh, separated by cigarette paper, but nonetheless, uh, uh, not a clear vote. And of course, what we have, as I said, is two by-elections in two very different areas. One of the by-election is in the West Country. Uh, I think it's been Tory since, since the constituency was first created. From my memory, this is in the late 70s, so maybe it was um, created um, under a Labour government. Either way, it's been Tory uh, throughout its history as a constituency. Uh, so it's it's rural. Um, it's I, I don't really I don't want to push my luck. I would guess more middle class, but I, I don't want to push my luck um, any further. And that's Tiverton and Honington, and the other one is in Wakefield. Uh, which is one of these so-called Red Wall, um, maybe wrongly named, but nonetheless, Red Wall uh, constituencies that were traditionally Labour. And what we have is the pollsters saying that the Liberal Democrats are in a very good position in the West Country to take a seat off the Tories, and Labour is in a very good position in Wakefield to take back a constituency uh, from the Tories um, up, up north. And that will clearly add pressure um, on Boris Johnson. So, you know, will he will he be blamed? Yes. Uh, will there be a second rebellion? Not immediately, because the rules of the Tory party don't allow um, a second motion. Of, uh, could you silence yourself, whoever it is? John Smithy. John, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, John. Uh, they, the, the rules don't allow that until after six months. On the other hand, they can change the rules. Also, amazingly, just telling you something about the Tory party, which I sort of suspected but didn't know, there was a reporter saying that the only person who actually knows the rules 
of the Tory party is the head of the 1922 committee. They don't publish the rules. MPs don't know the rules. The government is not meant to know the rules. This is meant to be something that only one individual, because there's no rule book, actually knows what they've agreed to and what they've changed and all the rest of it. And it used to be the case when I was younger uh, that uh, a Tory prime minister would get ill or uh, would be retired and they would be retired by what were called men in grey suits. And no one knew who the hell they were. No one knew how many they were, uh, but they could make or break a prime minister. And this is an example of, um, I don't know what century uh, sort of party uh, the Tories were, but parties in Britain didn't emerge in their present form really um, until you saw the rise of um, the Labour Party. And I think that's true for European parties in general with the rise of social democracy in the fourth quarter of the 19th century. So um, this is the emergence of universal suffrage and bourgeois parties uh, discover that they actually need to mobilise a base. And to do that, you actually have to have membership and you have to get people in and all the rest of it. Anyway, we're, we're expecting uh, um, a double loss and Tory leaders to go on the television and the radio and say, well, it's midterm and uh, things are difficult. And of course, you've got this, but we will go on and win the next general election. And my own position is, I don't know who will win the next general election. All I've ever argued um, is that I wouldn't rule uh, the Labour Party out, which some comrades on the left have done because Keir Starmer is supposedly so boring and so useless. I, I just don't buy uh, stuff like that. He's in quite a good position to win. Nothing automatic. Will the Tories be led by Boris Johnson? Possibly, possibly not. And I'll just add this thought in finally um, on that. We've got coverage in the um, in the Weekly Worker, or we've had coverage in the Weekly Worker on this uh, Tony Blair um, Future of Britain uh, conference. And it's been written about in the British press along the lines of Tony Blair just about to launch a third party. I, it's denied, but I just think that's rubbish. Tony Blair isn't stupid. There are a lot of stupid people about in politics, but I don't count Tony Blair uh, amongst them. In my view, what Blair is actually doing is bringing over. Um, what I'll call for the sake of the argument, left-wing Tories, that's um, Remainer Tories, anti-Brexit Tories, into the camp of uh, Keir Starmer. Now, whether Keir Starmer would welcome that, I don't know, because I think that would have to go hand in hand, at least with some sort of agenda of Britain rejoining uh, the customs union, uh, the EU customs union, or something along those lines. And of course, that would solve Northern Ireland uh, at a stroke, that one's, that one's done. On the other hand, from Johnson's point of view, this is exactly what he would want because he wants to keep Brexit on the top of the agenda or near top of the agenda. And that's why we've had the Northern Ireland uh, protocol. It's got nothing to do with form filling on the border between the North and the South, nothing to do with bad business in the North. It's quite the opposite. This is to do with British or more specifically English. Uh, politics. So how things will pan out, uh, I haven't got a clue. Um, I, all I would argue, as I said, um, is that it's quite feasible uh, to imagine Keir Starmer getting in 
uh, to number 10, in spite of the statisticians uh, telling us that it's somehow impossible because it's never done before. Things are always impossible until they're done. And then the statistics change. It's not statistics that's in command, it's pol politics uh, that's in command. And just to add a final thought on that, some on the left look at what the Tories are doing to refugees in Britain and just recall in horror and say that it's um, it's reactionary, it's immoral, uh, and it's off-putting. Well, it is to you and me, comrades. But if you take Tory voters, the overwhelming majority purportedly approve of tagging uh, migrants, approve of sending migrants to Rwanda, which has got nothing to do <laughs> with that stopping people coming over the channel. What it's got to do with is precisely voters that think that migration is a big issue, the Tories are being seen to do something about it. And the more nasty they can be, uh, the more people go, well, at least they're doing something. And that's the purpose uh, of these horrible, horrible uh, uh, gestures that Priti Patel uh, and Boris Johnson are indulging in up to the point uh, of where Britain is at least talking about withdrawing from the European Court for Human Rights. And that ought to be just added that this is not an EU institution. This was an institution established, um, at least in part by the initiative for the British uh, at the end of World War II. Um, so um, nothing to do with you know, Brussels bureaucracy, um, everything to do with the reaction um, to uh, the Nazis uh, and all the rest of it. So Britain's talking uh, about pulling out of that because of the intervention uh, of this court saying, well, until you've passed the laws um, on Rwanda, uh, we, you, we, we cannot declare that it's legal. Um, so the government is saying, well, we'll leave. Um, anyway, moving on. Uh, just wanted to comment on the House. This is the um, House of Representatives hearing uh, on the events of January 6th. I largely agree uh, with uh, the article in this week's paper uh, by Daniel uh, Lazar. I like the article because it actually goes back way before January the 6th, uh, back to Florida. Uh, back uh, to the attempt to get rid of um, uh, Trump. I must admit that when I first read the Still report, I went, I can believe that Trump would do something like that. Um, either way, uh, the point is there uh, to me um, that, uh, that what we were dealing with was an attempted self-coup and uh, why some sections of the left uh, were poo-pooing this or denying this. I, I find it very hard to fathom because we're not just dealing with the events in particular of January the 6th in the whole run-up uh, to this particular, um, you know, um, seizure of Capitol Hill and uh, the attempt to um, get hold of Mike Pence and get him to cooperate with uh, denying the legitimacy of Biden's election. We saw Trump trying to involve the police and the military um, um, as much as possible, and certainly the military um, um, repeatedly. And yes, um, this election is uh, a cheat, um, all sorts of, you know, 
ridiculous uh, um, legal uh, uh, challenges. Uh, my own take on it was, and I, you know, I, I, maybe someone will disabuse me of it, is that those above um, in the CIA and the military were not going to go along with Trump's uh, self-coup. And if there'd been a coup, at least in my assessment, it would have actually been um, to remove Trump. In other words, if, for example, um, uh, Pence had gone along um, and cancelled uh, the counting of the electors, uh, in my opinion, the army, CIA or whoever uh, would have marched in and said that this is illegitimate. I mean, that's that's I don't know under what rules of the Constitution. I don't know, but that's my assessment. But what it does, it does tell you something about the instability um, of uh, the United States. And um, again, this is me really putting my neck out on a line. It's not a prediction, but it really wouldn't surprise me uh, to see the, the United States go in the direction of a military um, style uh, dictatorship, i.e. the military looking at the mess that the politicians are making and the fact that they cannot work out, for example, a clear line on um, Russia and China and taking more and more power into their own hands. But as I said, that's wild speculation and it's almost certainly wrong. But I do think things have a certain direction. And at the moment, it ain't towards more democracy. Uh, we've got very limited democracy in America, as Dan has endlessly explained, and we agree with him um, on that. And it's going towards less and less. Um, that's the direction of um, March at the present time. Um, so, yeah, just to finish with um, the, the, the most stupid claim um, uh, that I saw um, in terms of um, this uh, failed self-coup was um, Counterfire, John Reese, Lindsay German and the rest of them all singing from the same hymn book, which was uh, this wasn't an attempted coup. It was more like the beer hall putsch. And you go, well, putsch in German, comes from Swiss German, it means coup. So what they were saying is this wasn't a coup, it, it was a coup, just stupid. Anyway, uh, why the left uh, were doing that, I, 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 as I say, I, I really don't um, understand. Okay, moving on, another event that's uh, coming up, that's actually we're in the midst of, and that's of course over the water to my south. Um, there's elections in France today. This is the second round of the assembly elections. We've had the presidential election and hey, um, as anyone could have predicted, <laughs> Macron won. Um, it's true uh, that uh, Le Pen and Mélenchon uh, ran a very close second, but they were way behind uh, Macron and Macron was always going to be uh, the winner in, in my uh, assessment. When it comes to the assembly elections, on the other hand, uh, we're into much more difficult uh, territory. And at least my reading um, of the polls, and we have, you know, we'll have the real polls out very soon, is that Macron will not have a majority, uh, that you'll have a big block of the left. And uh, this is the reformist left. So it's uh, Mélenchon is formerly of the Socialist Party, left of the Socialist Party. You've got the Socialist Party or the rump of the Socialist Party. 
what remains of the Communist Party of France, the Greens, and I think that's the end of the list, although I could be wrong. Uh, what Macron will, Macron will do, I, I don't know. Whether he'll do deals with the right, i.e. Le Pen, whether he'll do deals with um, NUPES, as it's called, this is uh, Mélenchon's uh, coalition, and bits of it, whether it retains any coherence, uh, that's an open question. What I would say is he looks like he's going to be in for even more uh, difficult uh, times because he hasn't got a majority in the assembly. Although you've got a, um, you know, a presidential system, it's more of a hybrid uh, system. Uh, after all, the prime minister uh, comes from the assembly. Um, uh, sure, it's appointed by the president, but one presumes that that prime minister has to get a vote of confidence, has to be able to command a majority. How are you going to get someone to do that? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know whether they, they, presumably they must be able to do it. But anyway, I'm not going to push my luck any further on that, other than to say uh, that what this will see uh, in other countries, uh, I think, will be another revival of this hopeless um, broad leftism, uh, that what we all ought to do is drop our principles and unite with the Greens and reformists and anybody um, um, against the right. Uh, and inevitably, uh, these uh, projects come to disaster or prove to be completely bloody useless. Um, but that is something I suspect that will happen. Okay, lastly, how much time have I got? come to an end, so 38, try to finish before seven. Just wanted to give comrades a report, not of the demonstration yesterday in London, which I've already partially done. Um, I just wanted to um, give a description of uh, two contingents um, on uh, the demonstration, because apart from a few exceptions, uh, the left basically set up, you know, their gazebos and their stalls and sent out their paper sellers to the demonstration, marched on the demonstration as part of trade union delegations, okay, with a copy of their socialist appeal, socialist alternative, socialist, socialist worker, weekly worker, etc. in, you know, uh, in front of them. But uh, the two exceptions uh, that are worthwhile naming uh, to that uh, were the uh, Communist Party of Britain, the Morning Stars Communist Party of Britain, as we call it. Uh, why? Because the party was established in reality uh, by those that rallied against the official communist leadership in Britain in defence of the revisionist, reformist, whatever you want to call him, editor of the Morning Star, one Tony Shater grey, grey, boring personality. Nonetheless, um, they organised a distinct block um, on the demonstration. It was moderately impressive. It consisted of um, tens of people, maybe 70, maybe 80 people. Um, so it had various district banners, had their uh, red flags with their, um, is it uh, Eric Gill, uh, Hammer and Sickle, uh, design um, um, on it. 
And yeah, I, you know, there I was uh, with my comrades um, watching the demonstration go past and go, oh, that's interesting. See if I recognized anybody uh, from my um, younger days. And then what we saw um, a distinct way behind it uh, was the uh, block um, of the Young Communist League, uh, the youth wing um, of uh, the Communist Party of Britain, the Morning Stars Communist Party of Britain. And uh, wow, uh, they were certainly distinct. And what they had done is uh, all at the front, they dressed in sort of anarchist uh, type um, black. So they were in, you know, black tops and they had um, red uh, bandanas uh, around their face and they had a big uh, banner in the front uh, make the rich pay hammer and sickle and young communist league but what was significant um, about this delegation uh, was not so much um, that it was um, noticeable and you know had its um, you know style uh, uh, to it. It was uh, conveying militancy. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, what was significant about it uh, was the slogans uh, that it was shouting. And certainly when it was uh, opposite uh, me uh, going by, I don't know whether this was because it was the weekly worker stall, but I very much uh, doubt it. I, but who am I to say? I suspect they were chanting it all the way through. But it was precisely the slogan that they were chanting. And uh, it went like this, comrades. So some of you older folks like me will remember it. Ho, ho, ho Chi Minh. And, okay, it's a bit of a blast uh, from the past uh, uh, for me. And then it went, ho, ho, ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara. I went, oh, okay. So they want to get involved in, you know, that sort of Cuba and, uh, good old Che Guevara, guerrilla warfare and uh, success of the Cuban revolution and the Elan of the, uh, the Cuban revolution, uh, which it still has, you know, uh, amongst certain sections um, of the left. And then it went like this. So the whole, the whole slogan goes like this, and then you'll get the point that I'm going on about. Ho, ho, Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara, Stalin. And that's how they kept repeating it. Now, the significance of that um, is precisely that who is in front of them and what had the general secretary um, of the Communist Party of uh, Britain been instructing members to do? This is a, a binding instruction under democratic centralism. Uh, he issued a document uh, that had a whole series of prohibitions about what one can say and what one can't say. So amongst the prohibitions were no glorification of uh, the armed uh, struggle unless it's approved of uh, by the party. So in the old days, that would have been the MK in South Africa, obviously the NLF in Vietnam and um, for Limo and uh, all the rest of it in uh, Africa. Um, but also what he prohibited is uh, positive mentions of Stalin. And so um, the fact that you had uh, the YCL uh, directly behind um, the CPB, to me, uh, and uh, I don't think I'm wrong, 
uh, is a clear declaration of a come along, expel us, or we're just about to break um, anyway. I don't know what the actual result will be, uh, but clearly a split um, is going to happen and it will happen very soon. Exactly what the politics are involved uh, with it, I, I'm not still sure. Uh, what we need to understand with the Stalin stuff is, is this is uh, in good part youthful rebellion. It's an attempt to, um, how should I put it, um, associate with what they imagine uh, to be a successful period of um, socialism, you know, the fi first five year plan, the success against the Nazis, the Chinese Revolution. Uh, Eastern Europe, the people's democracies, uh, and all the rest of it. And uh, in, in their imagination, there was a break with uh, Khrushchev. And of course, what we have in the CPB is a sort of official Communist Party frozen in aspic uh, at a certain date. So it basically is a party uh, or group uh, that was glorifying uh, Gorbachev, uh, he was called by that editor of the Morning Star that I quoted, the Lenin of our day. Uh, and they haven't really readjusted. So if you look at their official program, it came out in, uh, I don't know exactly what date, I would guess 1990. And it was talking still about the global balance of forces being decisively in favor of socialism, what they called socialism. And that, that, allowed in countries like Britain the peaceful road to socialism. But it's precisely because of the power of the Soviet Union and uh, the growth of the socialist countries, Eastern Europe, China, you know, into Africa, Yemen, Vietnam, and all the rest of it, that allowed uh, a peaceful road because the capitalists uh, would no longer dare drown, um, you know, a parliamentary vote in, in blood as they'd done in Chile, I remember 1973, I remember 1972, when they told us that Chile is just like Britain. And then 1973, September comes along. Oh, this is very much unlike Britain. This is South, South America. <laughs> Either way, um, the prediction I made in 1990 is being proved right. Uh, that although the Soviet Union is just about to collapse and Eastern Europe has already collapsed, uh, this is not going to change the British road to socialism. They're still going to remain committed to the peaceful road. This is a road to socialism via left Labour governments and not even left Labour governments to begin with. So Keir Starmer in our conditions today would be the first step in the direction of socialism. Uh, they wouldn't abandon that and they haven't. So their current programme basically is committed uh, to that sort of uh, orientation. Um, but the YCL, on the other hand, here's a generation that didn't live through that, hasn't got that burden on their back, and basically looks around the world and is able to, how she put it, um, be freer. Um, so again, I'm not saying there's any future in that political line. I don't think there is. I think once they start looking and trying to work out their politics on that basis, it, it will come to grief or they learn. Uh, I don't know. Either way, um, it's good to see um, rebellion, and it's rebellion from the left, however, um, you know, politically um, incoherent and, um, well, uh, misguided um, it is. Anyway, I think, 
think that would have, yeah, just to add that the, um, a similar thing happened in Ireland. Uh, what happened there is that the, what's called the Connolly Youth Movement uh, actually disaffiliated from the official Communist Party of Ireland. From what I can gather along very similar lines, they basically accused the official Communist Party of being crucified revisionists and um, look to a combination of sort of direct action and uh, Stalinist uh, politics. Something, you know, broadly along the lines of the KKE uh, in Greece. Um, anyway, that's, that's all. So that's uh, done by seven. Thank you, comrades. Okay, thanks, Jack. Yeah, you're